All right, we are working our way through the Gospel of John, and we have come today to John chapter 8, dealing with a very familiar story, a very familiar passage, usually just referred to as uh, the woman caught in adultery, <laughs> and, and automatically you know what we're talking about. So John, and it actually begins at the very end of John 7, so John 7, verse 53, here we go, everyone went to his home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone. And the woman, where she was, in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. If you have your bulletin, there's a listening guide on the back panel. I invite you to follow along. We've got a lot of ground to cover, a lot of things to look at. So let's just jump right in. We're going to look at the text. There are some textual issues with this passage. We'll look at the text, then we'll look at the story what happens, and then we'll make some application. And how does this apply to our lives, and what do we need to learn from it? So let's start, first of all, with the text. If you're using a study Bible, somewhere in your study Bible, there's going to be an indication that says that this passage, these verses, what we just read, do not appear in the early manuscripts. Or your Bible may say uh, the, this story was added later on, or in later manuscripts. Um, there... This passage has an interesting history <laughs> as far as passages go. Let me first of all say this. You probably already know we don't have any original autographs. Did you know that? We don't have any original autographs. That is to say original manuscripts, not one. We do not have the, the ink and papyrus that, that John used to write his gospel. We don't have Paul's letters. We don't have anything original. God in his wisdom did not preserve those for us. What we do have are thousands and thousands and thousands of copies of copies of manuscripts. And, uh, and that's, that's what we do have. But God in his wisdom has not left us original manuscripts. And that's a good thing. You know how weird people get with historical artifacts or religious relics. And you can just imagine the superstition that would, that would develop around anything like that. If we had John's original gospel, what he actually touched, if we had Paul's letter to the Romans, I mean, it would be no holds barred, wouldn't it? Be, people would want to touch it because it could heal them. It'd be magical. It'd be Raiders of the Lost Ark, I mean, in real life. That's what it would look like. And so God did not preserve original autographs, but he, he did preserve copies of copies of copies. Now, when somebody says, well, you know, the Bible was so corrupted in its translation and its transmission, uh, we really have no idea what it originally said. Actually, they're wrong. Whoever says that is wrong. They don't know what they're talking about. The Bible is, is the most well-attested ancient document in existence. We have about 6,000 Greek manuscripts of, of the New Testament. 
another 19,000 and change of manuscripts of the New Testament in other languages, not Greek. So all told, there are about 25,000 manuscripts, portions, or complete New Testaments. And there's a whole field of study called textual criticism, and it's all about analyzing and comparing and studying these manuscripts with the aim of getting to what was most likely the original text, what, what was originally written under the inspiration of God. That's textual criticism. So when it comes to this passage, though, things get interesting. When it comes to this passage, there's an interesting history. I'm not going to go through all the evidence. I mean, we just get too far in the weeds. I'm not going to go through all the evidence, the internal evidence, the external evidence, and all the arguments for or against Johannine authorship, that is to say John wrote it, that it's original to the gospel or not original to the gospel. But let me just give you a summary of, of the scholarship. Here's, here's kind of where Bible scholars land. Here's your outline. Many scholars, and I would say that this is the majority opinion, most scholars that I'm aware of, believe that this story may be historical, that is to say it happened, this is an event, it happened in real life, in the, in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. It's historical, but not original. And not original meaning not Johannine, meaning John didn't write this down. When he sat down and wrote the Gospel of John, this wasn't in there. And that somewhere along the way, this event, what we just read, this event was preserved in oral history, and it was written down, and people hung, hung on to it. And then at some point later on, someone put it in the Gospel of John. That is, that's a majority opinion. And there's arguments for that and against it. There's internal, external evidence, and, and all the rest. Other scholars, though, are not convinced. Other scholars suggest, oh, no, it's original. And they're not convinced John didn't write it. And they would say it's contextual. They, they would say, no, it fits right where it is. And, and they, don't, they don't believe that it was added later. They don't believe it's out of place. It fits the context. You have themes that are kind of running in and out of it, before and after. And so there are some scholars like Warren Wiersbe, and I like Warren Wiersbe. Warren Wiersbe would say, I think it's John. I think it's original, and I think this is how John put his gospel together. Either way, here's another opinion. Either way, whether it's original to John's gospel or not, Johannine or not, this is how God has preserved his text. This is the Bible as we have it by the grace of God. And so this is how God has preserved it. It's been in our Bibles for 1,300 years, and so we need to embrace it. And we can read it and treat it like, like maybe you do the end of Mark, the last chapter in Mark. There's some questions around that passage as well. We've dealt with that in other settings. So maybe we look at it and treat it like the end of Mark. So that's kind of where scholars land. The bottom line, here's what I want you to know. You can trust your Bible. God inspired his word. All scripture is God breathed. God inspired human authors to pen his word. And the same God who inspired men to pen his word inspired other people to preserve his word. He inspired his people and his church to collect his word, to preserve his word, to protect it, to translate it, and distribute it. And that's, I mean, that's the short version. That's how you end up with a Bible in your lap today. But God has preserved his word. You can believe your Bible. You can trust your Bible. You already know, 
You don't ever want to build a whole doctrine, a teaching, or practice on any given passage or any single verse. Never do that. I mean, you, I mean, you can get off in la-la land if you do that. You always compare Scripture with Scripture. So as you develop a doctrine, a teaching, you know, a belief system about whatever, when you b- build a doctrine, you want to know what does the whole Bible say about this subject. And you build your doctrine, your beliefs on the whole counsel of God's Word. Same thing with practice. What we do in church as a church, while you live your life, you want to know what, what does the whole Bible say about that. And then now that tells me how I'm going to live my life or what we do in church. What does the whole counsel of God's Word say? Not just one verse, not just one passage. As we come to this passage, and there's this question, is it Johannine, is it not? At the end of the day, we're not going to build a doctrine on this one passage by itself. We're not going to build practice on this one passage by itself. But having said that, there's nothing here that contradicts the rest of the Bible. And as we pull out application later in the message, it's, it squares with the rest of the Bible. And as you, as you read this passage, it's, it doesn't contradict the Gospels. This sounds so like Jesus. I mean, that's, just, that's Jesus all day long. Isn't that what Jesus would do? I mean, you can just see it. It just totally fits. So there's no contradiction between this text and the rest of John or the other Gospels or the rest of the New Testament. So that's the, that's the textual issue. Now, let's get into the meat of it. Let's get to the story. We begin with the setting of it in verses 1 and 2. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. So that's the setting. Luke tells us exactly the same thing. Later in Luke, in the Passion Week of Jesus, the last week of his earthly ministry, that's what Luke says Jesus would do. He would teach in the temple. Later in the day, he would leave Jerusalem. He'd go across the Kidron Valley. He'd go over into the Mount of Olives, and he would rest or pray or sleep in the Mount of Olives. Or he might go over the mountain, go over to Bethany, and stay with his friends. And then he would come back the next morning, early in the morning. He'd be at the temple. The crowds would find him, and there he would be teaching the crowds there in the outer court of the temple. So that's, that's the setting, and it totally fits what Luke tells us. But then notice the trap. Now the plot thickens, and we really have two traps One, we have the trap of the woman. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? First of all, I want you to see that the the woman, I suspect, has been trapped. So these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they bring this woman who's supposedly been caught in the very act, and they bring her, set her in the temple court right in front of Jesus. They cite Moses. Moses said, we have to, we have to stone women like this. Well, close, but not quite. <laughs> Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God's law, as given through Moses, said that adulterers and adulteresses should be stoned. Not women like this, no. Somebody's caught in adultery, the man and the woman, they both get put to death, not just women like this. So close, but no cigar. (laughs) But no, but but the Mosaic law did call for the death sentence for someone caught in the very act. Rabbinic law and, and God's law required witnesses. Before you can convict somebody of a capital crime and then carry out a death sentence, you have to have two or three witnesses to convict them. And according to rabbinic law, the, the evidence bar was sky high. 
those witnesses had to be able to say, I saw that man and that woman lying in the same bed, and I saw the motions that go with that act, and I can make a positive ID. It was him and it was her. Folks, that's a high standard, isn't it? What's the likelihood of two or three witnesses being able to see all of that? Not very likely. Add to that, they've just brought the woman. Where's the dude? (laughs) Where's the guy? She was called in the act. Where's the guy who was with you? These witnesses, if you saw her, you saw him. Where's he? Hmm, interesting, isn't it? Add to that, rabbinic law said, if you see someone about to sin, you need to stop them. You're compelled to warn them. You see somebody about to transgress against God, it's on you. You ought to warn them. You ought to say something, do something. Now, you can't control people. I mean, they might do what they're going to do, but it's on you to give that fair warning. You put all that together, and all that just says, this stinks to high heaven, doesn't it? This is suspicious. This sounds like entrapment. It sounds like entrapment. And What I want you to see is that these religious leaders, religious leaders, scribes and Pharisees, are willing to destroy this woman for their own ends, namely to discredit Jesus. They're trying to get Jesus, but they're willing to destroy her to do it. Sound familiar? (laughs) More things change, more things stay the same. That's the same world we live in today, isn't it? Well, they're willing to destroy her. Really, she's not on trial. Jesus is on trial. That leads to the other trap. So I suspect that she was trapped, and, and supposedly in the act of adultery, but she's been trapped, brought in. And the second trap is for the Lord Jesus. And that's what the whole point. In verse 6, they were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. So the whole point of this trap is to, is, is to trap Jesus. They're trying to get Jesus to say something that they can use against him. It's kind of like when they asked him about paying taxes. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Either way, however he answers that, we've got him. We, we can hurt him. Same idea here. Whatever he says, we've got him. If it, They don't want his advice. Uh, he, he doesn't have any judicial authority, civil or religious. This is just a trap. So if Jesus says, yeah, I hate to say it, guys, but yeah, we're going to have to stone her. That's, that's the law. We got him. Because now, one, we can put a wedge between him and the populace. The people love Jesus, one, because free food and the miracles, those are fun, but also he's the friend of sinners, right? He's the friend of sinners. As you read the gospel, Jesus is always showing love, care, concern, and compassion to the least of these, to publicans, to prostitutes, I mean, to to sinners in general. He is the friend of sinners. And here, if he has no compassion on this woman, well, we can put a wedge between him and his base. They could also turn him over to the Romans, The Jews do not have the authority to go around executing people. They need Roman permission to do that. And so if if Jesus says, yeah, yeah, we're going to have to stone her, and they can whip up a mob to stone her, then they could lay that off on Jesus to the Romans. They go tell him, tell the Romans, hey, this guy, he incited a mob. They killed this poor woman. It was all his fault. We got him. Or if Jesus says, oh, come on, guys, we we don't need to do that today. No, we don't need to stone her. No, no, no. Well, then we got him. He's contradicted Moses. He's he's teaching contrary to the law of God. We've got him. He's guilty. So there's the trap. Jesus is on trial. What's he going to do? Now, that leads us to the drama. Look at the drama of this scene. I mean, this is high drama. 
They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. So he doesn't answer their question. He just stoops down and starts writing in the dirt. When they persisted in asking him, then he straightened up. And he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, close your eyes and try to use your sanctified imagination. Can you imagine the scene, the drama of this scene? Here we have this woman caught in the very act of adultery. She is shamed, she's publicly disgraced, she is humiliated, and she's terrified. She may not live to see the end of this day. She's on trial for her life. Then you have these smug, self-righteous, hypocritical religious leaders, and you can just see the smirks on their faces as they think, I mean, they're too clever by half. They got Jesus now. They got him right where they want him. (laughs) They've got him. And then you can just imagine the crowd. Don't you know you could hear a pin drop? I mean, they're, they're waiting with bated breath. You know, just the hush. What will Jesus say? What will he do? What's going to happen to this woman? I mean, just the, if they had TV, this would be reality TV. I mean, this would be, it would be wall-to-wall coverage, wouldn't it? I mean, you could not write a more sensational story. We've got all the elements. We've got sex, we've got intrigue, we've got suspense and crime and punishment, courtroom drama, we got life and death, religion, it is all here. I mean, this is a made-for-TV movie. This is what a scene. And the question is, the question of the day, I mean, this is it, what do you say? Moses said, we stone women like this, what do you say? Oh, now we got him, what do you say? What do you say? What do you say? What do you say? Jesus doesn't say anything. (laughs) He does what he always does. The unpredictable. No one saw this coming. Jesus doesn't answer the question. He just starts writing in the dirt. And they hammer him and they hammer him. They persist in asking, what do you say? What's your verdict? What do we do? And then finally he stands up and he looks at him and he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Then he goes back to writing in the dirt. Wouldn't you love to know what he was writing in the dirt? Shake your head, yes. You want me to tell you? I can't, too bad. I mean, I don't know what he wrote in the dirt. Nobody knows what he wrote in the dirt. We can't know what he wrote in the dirt. When we get to heaven, we'll have to ask, what were you writing in the dirt? But, but this side of heaven, we don't know. God didn't preserve that for us. It doesn't keep people from guessing. Maybe he was writing the Ten Commandments. Maybe he was writing the names and sins of the accusers. Bob. What about Mary, old Bob? You know, <laughs> you know, maybe he's writing down some of their sins, their secrets. Maybe he's writing scripture like Exodus 23, where it says, You shall not bear a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. We don't know what he was writing, but we do know what he said. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, scholars kind of, they get tied up in knots. What does that mean? What do you mean by that? Here's some different ideas. What does he mean? Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. One idea, here's your outline, is that the witnesses throw the first stone. That would be a reference to Deuteronomy 17. 
You remember those eyewitnesses that are going to come in and say, I saw them, I saw them in bed together, I saw them doing the thing, and I saw, I saw their faces, I know who it was. If you're the witnesses, then you throw the first stones. I mean, that's, that's Deuteronomy 17. It's one thing to say killer. It's a whole other thing to go to the front of the line, and you're the first one to do it, to have a hand in it. whole different deal. Or some scholars would say, no, what he means is that Without sin means those who are not guilty of the same crime. Let he who is without sin, those who stone her must not be guilty of adultery too or uh, participants in the same crime. Now the problem with that is it's not likely that all of these scribes and Pharisees were adulterers. Some of them probably were, but not all. It's not likely. Well, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if a man looks at a woman and lusts after her, he's committed adultery with her already in his heart. Yeah, but these guys, they're not going to subscribe to that. That's not, that's, going, that's not going to be their deal. Or maybe Jesus is indicting them for their hand in this conspiracy. That, that's the idea. Or the third interpretation, and this is the traditional interpretation, and it's the plain sense of the text, is that Jesus is saying the one who has never sinned, you go first. Let he who is sinless, to be without sin is to be sinless. The one who cannot be accused of his own sin. The one who is not guilty of his own crimes. Well, he can cast the first stone. And of course, you know, Jesus is the only one who is truly sinless. He who was without sin. So he's the only one who is truly sinless. And Jesus starts riding in the, in the dirt again. Well, Jesus gives the perfect answer. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And the men walk away. One by one, they begin to walk away, starting with the elders. And then before you know, they've all left. But his answer is perfect. I mean, here's the wisdom of God in Christ Jesus. He affirms the law of Moses. He doesn't contradict Moses. He affirms the law of Moses. He doesn't get stuck trying to defend this woman. She may be guilty. Maybe she was caught in the act. So he doesn't, he doesn't try to proclaim her innocence. But what he does do is he exposes the wickedness of the accusers. Or as, as it's been said, he judged the judges and he accused the accusers. The accusers begin to leave. Now, I don't believe that they leave because they have a pang of conscience or because they've been convicted of their own sinfulness before God. That's, that's not these guys. We're not done with them. We're going to see more. And they'll, they'll end up crucifying the Lord Jesus. So we're not, no, that's not these guys. I think they turn around and walk away because they've been caught. <laughs> they've been caught in their own trap. Once again, they have been outmaneuvered in their maneuverings. They have been outplayed, outsmarted, and outwitted once again. D.A. Carson said this, Those who had come to shame Jesus now leave in shame. Those who came to shame him now leave in shame. But that's not the end of the story. Now I want you to see the grace. Look at verse 10. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And when he calls her woman, he's not being rude or discourteous or disrespectful. That's the same way he addressed his mother in chapter 2, the woman at the well in chapter 4. We'll hear Jesus and the angels address Mary Magdalene the same way at the empty tomb as well. So it's not a disrespectful. It's not like it sounds in English. Woman, you know, what's wrong with you, lady? It's not that idea. It's more like ma'am. It's polite, but not too personal. So it's more like ma'am. Woman. Where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. He doesn't call her a harlot or an adulteress or a sinner. Instead, he shows her grace. He offers her a chance at a new beginning. 
and a new life. I don't condemn you either. We heard in John 3, God sent not a son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So he offers her grace. Now, let's look at the application. We love this story. There's a lot here. How does this apply to our lives? What do we do with this? Well, I want you to notice, first of all, we have law and grace. The application of law and grace. One of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith, and salvation in particular, is where is the intersection between law and grace? How can you have justice and mercy at the same time? If you have law... If you have justice, how do you show mercy without negating the law and justice? On the other hand, if you, if you just execute pure justice and law, where's the grace and where's the mercy? How can you have both in the same place? Well, they intersect in Jesus Christ. Law meets grace. Justice meets mercy in the person and in the cross of Jesus Christ. The law of God says the wages of sin is death. That's the law of God. God's law requires it. His justice demands it. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. You sin, you die. That's the law of God. No exceptions, no gray areas, no wiggle room, no defense, no room for interpretation. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. Well, I thought God was a God of grace and mercy and love. And where's God's grace and mercy? You have law. Here's God's grace. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. God made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Here's the law of God. You and I have sinned against God. We deserve death. But Jesus died in our place. He died our death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. So Jesus died in our place. He satisfied the law of God. He, 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 he satisfied the justice of God. And having satisfied the justice of God, now he extends the grace of God. I died in your place. And now you can be forgiven. You can know the mercy of God. You can have the grace of God because he satisfied the law of God and the justice of God. And now you can be forgiven and saved, and brought into a right relationship with God. Justice meets mercy in Jesus Christ. This woman in the story, by all accounts, she's guilty, caught in the very act, and no one defends her, no one tries to say, oh no, she, she wasn't guilty at all. By all appearances, she's guilty. By the way, her accusers are guilty as well. But Jesus doesn't excuse her sin. He doesn't overlook her sin. Jesus will die for her sin. Here's the takeaway from this, from this story. You are the woman caught. That, that, that's you and me. That's us. She is us. We are the woman caught in adultery. I've never committed adultery. Well, you've done everything but. <laughs> and, and, of course, Jesus you know, talked about lust. All right, well, that got everybody then. We are, that's, that's us. We are guilty as charged. We are worthy of death. And yet Jesus offers grace and mercy and forgiveness. We are the woman in the story. If you've been saved for, I mean, when you first get saved, especially if you've come to Christ as an adult, 
especially if you've made some pretty messy choices in life as an adult, and then you come to Christ, and you are saved, and you are forgiven, and you are cleansed, and you are redeemed, you can't get over God's grace. That God would forgive me for what I've done, where I've been, the things I've... Oh, I mean, you just you celebrate that grace. I mean, you, just, you can't believe God forgave you of all that. Grace. But now here's what happens. After you've been saved for a long time, after you've been saved for years and years and years, we tend to get over that grace. We tend to get used to that mercy. And if you're not careful, you'll go from being the woman in the story to being one of these accusers. And you can start pointing out everybody else's sin while forgetting about the grace that was shown you. That's, that's the danger. I love what Gary Burge said about this. He said, Christ's forgiveness in each of our lives diminishes as we lose touch with the depth of our own sinfulness. When we no longer see ourselves in the drama of the woman, when we feel we are free from accusation and judgment, we lose sight of God's grace. This drama of Jesus and the woman gains power when I become the woman and reflect on the seriousness of my own jeopardy. Through this new vision, I gain a new glimpse of Jesus' love and mercy. Love and grace. Here's another application. We have grace and transformation. Or grace and new life. Jesus says to her in verse 11, I don't condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. Same thing he told the, the lame man at the pool in chapter 5. Go and sin no more. You've been forgiven. You have You've received mercy. You've been shown grace. From now on, sin no more. There's a chance at a new beginning. Grace inspires change. True grace, a true experience of the grace and the mercy of God motivates us to change. I mean, that's repentance. Grace and repentance, they go hand in hand. It's all about transformation. Grace is not God letting us off the hook so that we can keep on sinning, but this time guilt-free. Grace is not an excuse. I mean, as Paul would say, does grace abound so that sin doth much more abound? <laughs> you know, God forbid. Grace is not a license to sin. You know, well, you know, we all struggle. And, you know, no, that's, I mean, that, that's cheap grace, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. It's a false grace. But boy, it's a popular grace. It's preached in a lot of places, and you hear it a lot on television. But that's not true grace. When you have truly experienced the grace of God, you want to change. And what he forgave me for, I don't want to do that anymore. I've been forgiven. And what I used to be, I don't want to be that anymore because I've been forgiven. And what I used to do, I don't want to do that anymore because grace. Grace brings about a transformation, a change. It inspires that. Gerald Borchert said this, The liberating work of Jesus did not mean the excusing of sin. Encountering Jesus always has demanded the transformation of life, the turning away from sin. Sin was not treated lightly by Jesus, but sinners were offered the opportunity to start life anew. He gave this woman an opportunity to start life anew. Now, the question is, did she or didn't she? Oh, we don't know. We don't know. Did she repent? Did she follow Christ? Did she start a new life? We don't know. D.A. Carson said, The proper response to mercy received on account of past sins is purity in the future. That's, that's true grace. It's what Paul says. After 11 chapters of telling us about salvation, here's how you're saved. Here's justification. After talking about salvation for 11 chapters, then in Romans chapter 12, 
Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you might prove what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God. I mean, that's, that's the result of grace. That's the right response to grace. Well, don't you love this story? The woman caught in the act of adultery. I mean, what, what an episode. What an event. Sounds just like Jesus. Sounds just like him. We are the woman. We're caught. We're guilty. And yet there's grace in Jesus Christ. There's mercy available in him. Forgiveness, hope, and a new life in Christ. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Have you been saved? Has there been a time in your life when you, when you come to understand and realize you've been caught? You are caught in your guilt. You are caught in sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. I have sinned against a holy God and I stand condemned. But I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He died on the cross for my sins. He satisfied the law and the justice of God. He was raised again the third day. He's alive today, and he offers eternal life to whoever would believe on him. Have you done that? If not, I invite you to come. In a moment, we're going to stand and sing our hymn of decision. I'll be right here. I invite you to come to me and say, Preacher, I need Jesus, or I have questions, or tell me more, however you want to say it. We'd love to have a private conversation with you, pray with you if you'd like to, but you could leave here today a child of God, knowing that your sins are forgiven, and heaven is your home, and Jesus is your Savior. We invite you to come. Maybe you're looking for a church home, and if God has brought you here, we'd love to have you. You could come and say, we want to join the church, and we'll just take it from there. Perhaps you need to follow him in baptism, as some will in the next service. We can talk about that. You come. Maybe you need to pray with somebody. We'd love to pray with you. Whatever God may be laying on your heart this morning, we invite you to come. As we stand together quietly, reverently, and prayerfully. Father in heaven, God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving for us this story about the woman caught in adultery and our Lord's response to her. Thank you for the truths that we have seen, and Lord, help us to live in light of these truths and, and to worship you and love you better in light of them. God, I pray for the one who's never been saved. Bring them to the cross even now. Just take charge of this time of decision, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.